Good morning. It's a joy to be with you today. Uh, I'd invite you to take your Bibles in hand and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and let's stand and hear the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Hear it. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's a particular joy to be in your presence uh, again and to renew fellowship with so many of you. I'm so thankful for your pastor from whom I have learned so much. We're blessed by his investment at Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas, thankful for his teaching. Uh, I think every pastor wants to have uh, some effect on the preparation of the next generation of pastors. Uh, all of us want to invest ourselves in the people of God, in the building up of leadership in our own congregation, but uh, I think all of us want in some small way uh, to play a role in preparing another generation of faithful ministers of the gospel, and your pastor does so by teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary, and that's a great blessing to me and to us, and so I thank you for sharing him with us. Now, why, why Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16? Why, why this passage today? Well, first of all, I, a lot of times when I go to a place, I'm given an assignment. Uh, but your pastor very kindly let me pick what, what I could preach on. So I just made sure that I wasn't duplicating something that was already being done uh, here at Redeemer in McKinney. And I'll, I'll just admit to you, the reason I chose this passage is because I wanted to learn more about it. I've preached on this passage before to my congregation in Jackson, Mississippi, mm, closing in on 20 years ago. Matthew was one of the first books that I preached from when I became the pastor at First Pres in Jackson. And so Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16 came a long time ago. And I'm actually teaching a course right now at RTS called Christ, Culture, and Contextualization, which really asks the questions, how are Christians to faithfully engage with our society, our culture, and the world around us. And there are a number of passages in the New Testament that directly address that particular issue. 
John 17, verses 22 to 24 comes to mind. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 come to mind. But certainly Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 is one of those passages where Jesus just looks at us and point blank tells us how we're to relate to the society and the culture and the world around us. And I wanted to learn more about this so that I could be more faithful in telling pastors and future pastors how they are to help their congregations address that issue. And we all feel this issue keenly, don't we? I I think most of us feel that we are in an increasingly antagonistic environment for Christians. Uh, We have enjoyed a very long period of time in our country, and in fact in, in Western history, going back almost 400 years, where Bible-believing Christianity has enjoyed certain privileges in the culture. Uh, the, the, those Bible-believing Christians have enjoyed not being largely persecuted in the culture. And we feel now that we are entering into a phase in history and in life where there is more antagonism and opposition towards Bible-believing Christians in our jobs, in education, in our uh, participation in the larger community. Uh, A few years ago, we have a a preaching lectureship at RTS called the John Reed Miller Lectures, named after a pastor of First Presbyterian Church. And the, the lectures always address preaching and pastoral ministry. And a few years ago, Tim Keller came and gave those lectures. And a man flew from California... Uh, to hear those lectures. Interestingly, he was not a pastor. He was a higher-up in one of the major tech companies. If I told you which company, you would know exactly which company it is. You use its products. Uh, And you'll see why I'm not telling you what company it was in just a few minutes. He sought out Tim after one of the lectures, and he said, you know, I'm a ranking executive with this particular company, and if people in my company, especially the highest-ranking bosses, if they knew what I believed, I would lose my job immediately. Uh, And and we're we're seeing things like that in our culture more often. Perhaps you followed the story of the British politician Tim Farron, who just a couple of years ago was uh, bounced from being the leader of his political party because he was a Bible-believing Christian. And uh, the members of his party thought that that was incompatible with his leadership of their political party. There's a lot of discussion right now in Scotland about who is going to be the next first minister. And one of the names that keeps being mentioned is Kate Forbes. And Kate's father grew up under the ministry of Eric Alexander and Sinclair Ferguson at St. George's Trine, and she's a member of the Free Church of Scotland, which is a conservative, Bible-believing denomination. And many people are asking, is it even possible for a Bible-believing Christian to be a leader in modern, secular Scotland? In fact, one of the other members of her party said, as long as she keeps her beliefs to herself and private, it's okay. 
but she cannot believe bring those beliefs into public life. And so all, Christians today all around the world are thinking about the issue, how do we relate to society? How do we relate to this culture? What, what are we supposed to do as believers? What's our posture supposed to be? What's our mindset supposed to be? What are our marching orders? And Jesus gives us some marching orders in this passage, and I, I want you to be encouraged today as we look at this passage together because Jesus starts this passage with encouragement. And I want you to, in fact, see four things as we work through the passage. First, I want you to see the encouragement that Jesus gives you. Then I want you to see the distinctiveness that he says that you are to be. Then I want you to see the visibility that he calls you to. And finally, I want you to see the mission that he gives us. Those four things, the encouragement that he gives us, the distinction or distinctiveness that he calls us to, the visibility that he calls us to, and then finally the mission that he lays out for us. Those four things together. When you think about how Christians are to relate to society, culture, and the world, this is one of the major passages that comes to mind. And at the very outset, Jesus gives you a word of encouragement. And he gives you a word of encouragement. If you'll let your eyes look back to verses 10, 11, and 12, what is he talking about in the, per, in the verses immediately prior to this passage? He's talking about the fact that if you love him and you trust him, if you believe in him and you follow him, if you are his disciples you should expect persecution. Notice what he says. Blessed are you, verse 11, when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. In other words, he's telling his disciples to expect the world to oppose them in a variety of ways to insult them, to look down on them, to cast aspersions upon them, even to persecute them. And then he tells them, rejoice. And then in this passage, he turns right around and he says this, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, verses 13 and 14. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? He's encouraging you. And here's the encouragement. Even... If the world finds you objectionable, even if the world wants to marginalize you, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. No matter what their attitude is towards you, God in Christ has made you to be salt and light. The effect of his work in you by grace by the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, is to make you into salt and light. That's what he has done. He has uh, made you and me, despite the opposition 
and even the persecution that we face in this world to be salt and light. Notice he doesn't command us to be salt and light in this passage. He flatly states that we already are. If, if we've been saved, if we've trusted in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, then we are salt and light in this world. He has made us to be. That is a huge encouragement. No matter what the world thinks of you, you are salt and light. Even if the world finds you not only unnecessary but problematic, you are necessary in this world. The world needs you in ways that it may not appreciate. You actually serve an important and beneficial and necessary function in this world. That's a wonderful encouragement for us to remember. When when we see culture darkening, darkening in its knowledge of God, darkening in its morality, darkening in its impulses and practices, and oh my, the things we are seeing today. And I, I... I I often am thankful that my father and my father-in-law are both dead and gone and in glory now because both of them fought for our country in the Second World War, and I think right now, if they looked around, they would be saying to me, I cannot believe that I fought for this. I can't believe that I fought for this happening in our culture around us. But even when we see that, here's encouragement. We are salt and light. Don't miss that encouragement from Jesus. Jesus is encouraging with you. Uh, Jordan and I have a common friend who's a pastor in Washington named Mark Dever. And I remember Mark saying once that older pastors know that they can get more out of their uh, people from encouragement than they can admonition. And uh, it's it's actually a wonderful principle to remember that very often what we need in life is encouragement, not rebuke and admonition. Now, there's a time for rebuke and admonition, to be sure, but encouragement goes a long way. And here, Jesus, in this passage, is giving encouragement to his disciples and to you and me. No matter what the world thinks of us, we are salt and light. Now, what does that mean? That's, That's the second and the third points that I want you to consider with me this morning. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, he is drawing your attention to the fact that you are distinctive in this world. You are different. There is a distinction between you and the world. You have a different master than this world. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the authority in your life, not the whims and fads and errors uh, of the world. He is your master. And what, what is, what in the, at the end of this gospel, Jesus says to the disciples, go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. So as disciples of Jesus Christ, we obey his word. We obey God's word not worldly wisdom. And what is that what that makes us is distinct. We don't think like the world, we don't speak like the world, we don't act like the world, we don't desire 
like the world. We think the way our master taught us to think. We live the way our master taught us to live. We speak, by the way, even in the passage that you were reading this morning, it talked about how we speak. We speak in a distinctive way, not with coarse, worldly jesting, but we speak even with godliness. And that distinction is part of what it means to be salt. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's the first thing you need to know about your role in this world. You are distinct. And that very distinction is an important role for you in this world. When the world looks at you, they are to recognize that you're different. You're distinct. You're not like the other things around you. And, and whether we are in a public position or whether we are mostly in private, out-of-the-way positions, we always are bearing uh, witness to our distinctiveness by our conduct. The, the, the way that we speak, the way that we act, uh, the, the, what we desire, what we believe, we're paying witness to Christ through walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And Jesus says that's the first thing we're called to be distinct. We're not to be, to use Paul's language in Romans 12, we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to the word of God, right? So we're to be distinct in the world. And what, it, what, it, what that is, is an antidote to compromise. Because what, what are you tempted to do when you're in a prevailing culture? You're tempted to compromise, to get along, to do whatever you have to do to get along. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 the key to your witness in the world is your distinctiveness. So it's, that's a wonderful, wonderful point for Jesus to make. You are salt. You are to be distinctive. Your function, by the way, the, the main function of salt in Jesus' time was preservative, right? It kept things from going rotten. And it, that's a very modest thing for Jesus to say. A lot of people today will talk about Christians transforming the culture. And there can be hidden in that phrase a lot of hubris. Really? We're going to transform this culture. Notice Jesus says, no, actually, you're going to keep it from decaying. That's a much more modest aspiration, isn't it? You're here as preservative. You're here to keep decomposition from happening at a faster pace. It's a, it's a modest, but it's an important function in the culture. And you know, even at simple levels, we can see this playing out. Have you, have, you, have you ever been in a conversation with a person? This happens to pastors all the time, but it happens to believers uh, in various circumstances as well. I'll be in the conversation with a person on the plane. You know, you're sitting down on the plane and people will just start a conversation with you. And then about 10 minutes into a conversation, usually somebody will check in and do the old, by the way, what do you do? You know, and then I have this delicious moment of what am I going to tell them? You know, 
you know, and, and so it's, in some way or another, I either tell them that I'm a pastor or I'm a preacher or that I teach theology. And usually when I say that, I can watch them scrolling back in their mind, wondering what they just said to me in the previous 10 minutes. Um, and, but it's funny, I bet you as Christians have experienced the same kind of thing. You've been in the middle of a conversation, you suddenly admit that you're a Christian, or they find out that you're a Christian, and they start scrolling through their minds. What if you're salt. You're there to prevent decomposition. That's what salt does. But Jesus also has a more positive metaphor that he uses here. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, which gives light to all who are in the house. What you, we, we, in a world filled with opposition, we could be uh, tempted to hide or to retreat or to isolate ourselves from the wicked culture around. And no doubt that was a temptation for Jesus' followers. And so he says, you're not just to be distinct, you're also to be light. You're meant to be visible. You're meant to be present. You're meant to be seen. You are meant to shine before men. They're meant to see you. They need to see the light that you cast. And light in the Bible is... Uh, is used to indicate a number of things. Sometimes light speaks of truth as opposed to error. Sometimes it speaks to morality as opposed to immorality, to, to behavior that is appropriate for the light as opposed to deeds done in darkness. But whatever the intent of this, the point again is Jesus wants the way that you live to be visible to other people. His disciples live in a distinctive way, visibly in front of other people in the society, in the culture, in the world, as a witness to him. And so there, Jesus is calling us, don't, don't withdraw off in a corner, don't hide your light. I want you wherever you are to let your light shine. And then he gives us our mission. And you see that in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, there are two phrases there that occur later in the Gospel of Matthew, both of them in Matthew chapter 6. And I want you to think about this for just a second. It's very interesting. Jesus says, I want you to let your light to shine before men. But notice, turn, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Less than a chapter later, he gives a warning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. And now hold on. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Oops. 
Okay, Jesus, I don't quite understand. You want my light to shine before men so that they will see my good works, and you're warning me about practicing my righteousness before men. Help me, Jesus. What are you talking about? The next phrase in both verses explains it to you. He wants, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, your light to shine before people so that they see, see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He warns against you practicing your righteousness before men so that, look at Matthew 6, verse 1, you are noticed by them. Ooh, there's the difference. He wants people not to say, wow, you're really good so that you feel pious and important. He wants people to notice you and say, what kind of a father must she have? What, what kind of a father must he have? He wants your behavior to lead not to your, the praise of you, but to the praise of him. We're to live for the glory of the Father. So our goal in life, we're called to be distinct from the world, visible to the world, in order that God would be glorified. Our goal is not for our own praise. Our goal is the praise of God. We want people to worship the same God who saved us. Now, there's another phrase in this sentence that is repeated as well. Looking in at Matthew 16, end of the verse, that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, you have already said those words today in the worship service. Where do they come from? They come from Matthew chapter 6. Remember, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, in, in essence, Jesus, we have never heard anybody in our life pray like you pray. Teach us to pray like you. And when he does, he says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, Matthew 5.16, that is the first usage of that phrase in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5.16 so that they glorify your Father in heaven. Let's just pause on that right now. That is an enormous privilege. When you trust in Jesus, you get the Father who is in heaven for your own Father, so that when you pray, you can pray to your heavenly Father. <laughs> That's an enormous, that, 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 theologically, that is called the benefit of the doctrine of adoption. When, when God saves us, he not only forgives us and accepts us, he adopts us as his own children. Jesus is not talking about the universal fatherhood of God here. He's talking about the redemptive fatherhood of God. Those who trust in Jesus may approach God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, as their heavenly Father. Isn't that glorious? 
And it, it, if, if you're here today and you want to have a heavenly father like that, I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you how you can have a heavenly father like that. Believe on Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him and you can pray to your father who is in heaven. Now Jesus says, here's your mission and here's the purpose of the mission. You are to let your light shine before men. You are to be distinct from the world, visible to the world, for the sake of the world. You, even though the world hates you, you're living for their benefit, for their sake, so that the Father would be glorified. You want the world to come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want the world to be able to come into the Father's presence and say, Our Father. Even the world that hates you, you want to see your enemies become your brothers and sisters in Christ because they trust on Christ and have the same heavenly Father by grace. That's your marking, marching orders, to be distinct from the world, visible to the world, for the sake of the world, so that your Father who is in heaven is glorified. That is life-changing. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Even in a culture that is increasing in its opposition. And Jesus will have the last word on this. You don't, you don't have to, you do not have to, we know how the story ends. We know how this story ends. So no matter how dark it gets in the culture, this is still our marching orders. I know that's an encouragement to me. I hope that's an encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, this morning. Let's look to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that all those of us gathered today who are trusting in Christ would be encouraged in our relationship to the society and culture around us by what Jesus is taught in this passage. And that those who are here today who don't know you would come to know you savingly through the work of the Holy Spirit as they trust in Christ and then are able to pray to their Heavenly Father and also be salt and light to this dark world around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.